It's been more than five years since Lynn passed away at the hands of Jesse Krzyzewski. The defendant betrayed Lynn out of greed. Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Lynn Hernan in Wisconsin. She was a hairdresser, all-around fun gal. She liked old films. Actually, she loved old films. Black and Whites, Wizard of Oz, 60s, 70s, 80s, and anything before that kind of old-school film. She had a thing for movie posters. She survived on modest means. Hairdressers are not uh, typically affluent, and she was no exception. But she loved a bargain. Her greatest accomplishment was to get a deal or to take something old and make it new again or to maybe combine some finds of hers to make a neat gift for somebody. She was very thoughtful toward her friends. Many people expressed that, that she always remembered people she cared about on birthdays and holidays. It might be something as simple as a card, but often it was a gift that wasn't so much extravagant, but it was meaningful. She really thought about what a person needed, wanted, or liked and made sure that what she gave them sort of represented them. It might be things she already had in her house that somebody had admired, or it might be a thrift shop find. She apparently was an avid thrifter. I love a good thrift. Right? Nothing beats finding a score. She also made things or repurposed them. She was pretty handy and pretty crafty. On behalf of Lynn's family and true friends, my name is Anthony Poza, and I was close with Lynn for my entire life. I would like to note that Lynn was not a loner. She was the life of most get-togethers when she was around. I would also like to note that she was a compassionate, humble, and very generous person. She would give you the shirt off her back if she knew it would look good on you. That's cool. She sounds like a fun person. It seems like uh, we could go to a couple Goodwills and have a good time together. She does. She sort of reminds me of like if I could combine a couple of ants and a couple of people I've known and merge them together. And I don't think she had any enemies. She knew everybody at the stores where she shopped and the places where she did business because she was just friendly and outgoing and made it a point to get to know and be friends with people. You'd said uh, we're in Wisconsin. What part of Wisconsin are we in? Where is she living at or hanging around? Pewaukee. Oh, okay. So we're just a bit west of Milwaukee. All right. I've been to Wisconsin. I don't think I've been to that part of Wisconsin. I've been to the Dells, and I've been through Wisconsin a couple of times, mostly the southwest corner. Madison, um, I spent some time there, and it's really nice. It's a beautiful city. And one thing, anywhere that we've been in that part of the world, Wisconsin, and even in um, like the Chicago area, everybody there is so friendly. Like You're describing her, and it's funny because it's just like, I feel like people out there, you know, you, you go to get coffee and here on the East Coast, everybody's just kind of like, shut up and give me my coffee. And there, uh, I remember we were at a at a coffee shop and the guy just starts asking me all these questions. And, and I was a little annoyed by it at first. And I'm like, oh, this is just how friendly people are. Okay, this is, this is interesting. <laughs> and it was like that everywhere. And I thought maybe we do have a problem out here on the East Coast. So This is just how, you know, normal people behave. <laughs> right, exactly. She really cared about her own appearance, the hair, the makeup, her clothes, and her jewelry. She had a lot of costume jewelry, not expensive stuff, but, you know, she had the necklaces, the earrings, the bracelets, and 
she wanted to look good if she was going to be out or have people in. And people said that if, if she felt like she didn't look good and someone said they were going to stop by her house, she'd tell them not to. But if they showed up anyway, of course, she would welcome them in and say, oh, you know, I told you I'm not looking good. You shouldn't have come. And they're like, eh, we're not here to look at how pretty you are. We just want to spend time with you. She loved the lake. She lived several places near the lake and entertained friends there. She was, I believe, 61 when she passed, but she did not do technology. She still had a flip phone. She did not text. She did not have emails. She did not own a computer, no internet at her house. And when friends would stop by, if they showed her pictures on their phones, apparently she had a little trouble even with how to swipe to get to the next one and get back to one. And uh, she would just point to the one she liked and tell them they needed to print them out for her. And this being in like 2017, 2018, it's not that long ago. Say our dad would probably still have a flip phone if we'd let him. So probably she had a habit of paying for things by cash or check. Occasionally she might have a store card like a Kohl's or something, but she worked pretty hard to get those paid off as soon as possible. And sometimes it was in an attempt to uh, improve her credit. And other times I think it was, especially if you ever had a Kohl's card, the discounts that come when you add up all those daggone coupons and then add the credit card and all that, it, they certainly make you feel like you're getting everything free. I mean, if you're paying full price at Kohl's, you're just setting your money on fire. There's really no point in ever doing that. You got a point. If you don't walk out with it looking like you save 90% on paper, at least. Exactly. Something wrong. Yeah, they're like, uh, you know, buy three, get seven free. Um, but, you know, they're $1,000 a piece and it's t-shirts. <laughs> right. But then we'll give you a 25% off friends and family and 10% discount if you use your Kohl's charge and coupons for $50 off your next. Yeah, it's crazy. And you're going to earn $4 million in Kohl's cash. Right. So <laughs> I can imagine being the bargain hunter that she was, that, that might have been a thing. Uh, Anthony Poza, who we talked about a minute ago, he said that he'd been out with her and they went to a thrift shop and she pulled out the checkbook and he's like, what are you doing? Does anybody even do that anymore? But she was all about the checks and the cash. She had some back problems and eventually this led her to have to stop working and she was living on disability income. So modest means, but that's okay because she lived a pretty frugal lifestyle as it was. There was no big spending going on. She loved her cats. I believe she had two of them there toward the end, and she was concerned about their care and well-being if she ended up in the hospital. So a couple times she was in the hospital and she was always worried about the cats, and she also worried like when she was gone, she didn't have any family. She was kind of worried about what would happen to her kitties and wanted to make sure they were taken care of. Didn't I see something? Um, I'm pretty sure maybe it was in her obituary that she had asked for any donations to be given. It basically, instead of people sending flowers or money her wishes were that hey g give money to a no-kill animal shelter because she just really loved unwanted stray animals you're absolutely right it was uh, part of her memorial and her obituary give to the no-kill animal shelter and that was a cause that she believed in this woman's checking all the boxes i mean she's thrifting she sounds like uh, you said hairstylist and i think you know so she's kind of entrepreneurial, got her own thing going on. She's frugal. She's caring, uh, she, all the things. Like, I mean, she just sounds like an all around, like solid, good human being. She does. And most of the witnesses that testified about Lynn and her life, there was a 
almost a permanent smile on their face when they talked about her. It was something you can't fake. It just, you could see they had a light in their heart for this woman because she was everything you're saying. Just yeah. a, a love for a, a happy, pleasant, fun woman. Mm. Caring. Right. She's checking all the boxes. Speaking of her friends and family, by the time she died, she didn't have any family left. She didn't have any kids. That'll save you a lot of money. Right? Absolutely. She did have two distinct circles of friends. One of those circles we're going to call the Kareen circle because Kareen Poza was, I'm going to say, sort of the center point of that circle just because we've got to pick a center point. Kareen and Lynn had been friends for a long, long time, 30 years, it sounds like, or better. Kareen had a son named Anthony, who Lynn just absolutely adored. And I would say she treated him like a nephew or a son or a godson or all three combined. She just absolutely adored him. That is clear. And he very much loved her. Jim Kelleher, he dated Lynn for, I believe it was like 10 years, and they stopped dating 20 years ago, but they remained very close friends to the point that Lynn was not only friends with Jim, Lynn was also friends with Jim's wife. Jim would talk to Lynn, it sounds like, uh, multiple times a week at least uh, about whatever, this and that. Lynn would join them at, you know, come to parties and cookouts and all that kind of stuff. She loved to cook, so she would bring some kind of a dish. Now, toward toward the end, in the last uh, couple of years, Lynn was having some health problems. She was having some abdominal issues. So she would sort of show up with whatever she'd made and drop it off and say, you know, hey, you guys enjoy. I made this for you. Have fun. But she didn't want to stick around for the party because she had these issues. I need somebody like Lynn in my life, man. Anybody wants to drop off some tater tot hot dish, you hit me up. <laughs> right? I imagine that was had to be in her cookbook, at least, among other things. Now, Lynn wasn't, I don't want to say that Lynn couldn't go anywhere doing anything, because obviously she was cooking, she was taking things, but she wasn't hanging out at the uh, parties and get-togethers as much in the last few years. Now, the other circle that Lynn had, we're going to call the Jennifer Circle, and this circle just included two people. This was Jennifer Flower. This is someone she had met around the time that she met Kareen, different places. I think Lynn had worked with Kareen's brother, and Lynn had lived in an apartment complex with Jennifer. So she befriended Jennifer. They were longtime close friends. When Jennifer had a child, Jesse Kerchevsky, again, Lynn treated her like a daughter niece, goddaughter, all of those things combined. So both of these, what were kids, Anthony and Jesse, they knew Lynn from birth. She was, although not blood, she was family to them and she treated them very, very well. But these circles really didn't overlap. Lynn was either spending time in the Jennifer circle or in the Kareen circle. It sounds like there were only less than a handful of occasions where the two circles would even meet each other. For instance, if Kareen was at her house and Jennifer stopped by or vice versa, but it was accidental and, and it's not like they all got together and hung out. When Lynn's parents died, and they died pretty close together, I mean, not like at the same time, but like within a year of each other, they left her some money and a life insurance policy. Lynn did not go on some wild spending spree or anything, but within a year or so, she bought a new Jeep and then a condo. So it wasn't like the check hit the bank and the next week she's like, eh, let me go get a car, let me go get a condo. These things are spread out a little bit, appear to be pretty thoughtful. She was not draining that account. 
toward the end, she bought a few pieces of real jewelry, including a gold bracelet. She certainly liked jewelry, and all her life she'd had costume jewelry, so she wanted a few nice pieces. You gotta treat yourself. Absolutely. Other than those purchases, she pretty much used the money just to supplement her disability income, so she didn't really increase her lifestyle. She just used that to fill in some blanks. Then, Jesse Kurchevsky entered the scene as a more regular fixture. She began about six months before Lynn died, helping Lynn run errands, do things around the house, maybe when she was not feeling well, helping tend to her and that sort of thing. Lynn had had some medical problems in addition to the back issues that she was having, and she had a lot of pain from that. She also had these abdominal issues that prevented her from wanting to hang out at get-togethers and whatnot. And really, there was never any answer as to what those problems were. She was experiencing an upset, angry stomach and abdominal pain and diarrhea and these sorts of things. And it was rather uncomfortable and she felt it was embarrassing as well. She had tried many different medications and certainly seen a lot of doctors, but nothing was really fixing the problem. I think maybe you said this, but she's what, right around 60 years old at this point? That's yeah, I think she was like 61 when she died. So yeah, she'd have been in her a very late 50s when she started having these issues. And everyone agreed that in the last few years of her life, she was less, I don't want to say less social because she would certainly talk to people and those that visited her, she was very welcoming to and she was still friendly to everybody out in the stores and places of business, but she wasn't attending as many events or doing so much of that kind of thing because she had this constant belly problem. The medications that she was taking and perhaps whatever the problem was had led to her gaining some weight and she was not happy about that. She was experiencing incontinence and these are reasons that someone who's very conscious about how they look does not want to necessarily go be the center of attention as I'm sure she would have been anywhere she went. The pictures of her that we've seen, you know, she was a good looking lady and she definitely carried herself well. Someone you would talk to if you saw them, you wouldn't run the other way. Like us. Right, right. She wasn't, you know, scaring people off. She was well put together, not a hot mess. <laughs> Yeah, there's a reason we do a podcast without video, am I right? Right. So Lynn, unfortunately, was found dead in her recliner on October 3rd, 2018. There were prescription bottles on the table next to her. There were also crushed pills on a plate. And I don't mean just a couple of crushed pills. I mean like a big pile of powder that looked like, I don't know, maybe some fingers had been oh in it gosh. to sort of swipe and scoop it up. I'm picturing like uh, like Tony Montana or something. I mean, is that what you're describing? Kind of. Yeah, it was bizarre. It was a mound of powder that is ridiculous for anyone to even consider. But wow. There was a spoon on the floor. There were also crushed pills and like pill dust on her chest and sprinkled in her hair. What? Okay. That was something the ME brought out that she thought was unusual. She'd not seen that before. Initially, the death appeared to be, by all involved, an overdose, either by accident or suicide. That was not known at the get-go. I think they were leaning towards suicide, but Lynn wasn't wearing any pants when she was found. She was sitting in her recliner on a chucks pad due to her incontinence. You know, she had like a pee pad under her. I imagine that would be fine if you're not moving too much and you're sort of operating out of your recliner there. I've certainly seen that in my travels with patients, but it doesn't sound like the way you would want to go if you are a person that cares about your appearance and is going to kill yourself. Yeah, no, that's, this is all very weird for people who might not know, just because you know, your line of work, Chuck's pad, that's a pretty common thing. 
uh, and I know you said P-pad then, but maybe just explain, because I, I can imagine some people might not have the correct image of what you're talking about. Well, it's a it's very similar thing that they use to train puppies as the, what you use for patients who deal with incontinence. It's sort of a, it's plastic backed and then has an absorbent thin little pad. It's just a little square sheet, maybe three feet square. You put it under if you're going to have leakage problems so that it'll prevent you from ruining whatever's underneath. Right. Yeah, it's not, I, I don't want, you know, some people think maybe it's like something you wear or whatever. So, so she's basically, and I'm not trying to be crass, but just, I mean, you know, you, you gave us this great background on, I, I mean, I imagine her as like this sweet, not overly proper, but, you know, caring about her appearance and wanting to just sort of engage with people and be sort of connected to people in a way that she's putting off these good vibes and, and a good image of herself. So we have that. And then she's found with like just a pile of crushed up drugs, some of it sprinkled in her hair on her chest and not wearing pants on top of a puppy pad. I mean, that is uh, bizarre is the only word that really comes to my mind when you say that. Right away, it sort of sends up a little bit of a red flag because when women commit suicide, it tends not to be in a way that's going to disfigure them because they want to look pretty in their casket. Whether they think about that consciously or subconsciously, it's just a fact. You know, you can look at the numbers and women are not the ones that are dying by a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, not nearly as often as men. So you would think someone that is concerned about how they look and not wanting people to see them when they're less than at their best to imagine that she would decide to end her life sitting in a recliner with no pants on, on a pee pad with gobs of powder and pills all over her everywhere. It just, it just doesn't wash. Something, something's off with it. I mean, it's not saying it's not possible. You know, maybe you get to a point where you're like, screw it, I don't care. But usually the way a person lived sort of comes through even subconsciously in mm-hmm. how they die. And that doesn't seem to be the case here. Yeah. So at the onset there at the beginning, they were thinking this is an overdose, likely either an accident or a suicide. And I say accident because, well, perhaps maybe she was crushing up her pills to be able to swallow them. But the fact that there was this mound of powder on the plate and crushed pills and pill fragments everywhere leaned the medical examiner toward suicide. Again, notwithstanding the issue of just understanding Lynn's mentality, the no pants thing is a bit odd. But things sort of changed when the toxicology came back and revealed that Lynn had 160 nanograms per milliliter of tetrahydrosoline in her system. Tetrahydro what? <laughs> right. So that is uh, an ingredient in some eye drops, not all eye drops, but in some eye drops that are available over the counter and they're intended to be dropped in the eyes. And if used as expected in the eyes, the concentration you'd expect to see in someone's blood would be about one or two nanograms per milliliter, not 160. Interestingly enough, in my career, I had uh, an occasion to learn way more than I ever wanted to about this drug. And my understanding, and I'm sure you've looked at this and you're more medical than I am, but my understanding is that it's used as directed, right, as a topical solution for your eyes to clear up, you know, red eyes and all this other stuff. It works through your system very quickly, too. So it's not the kind of thing that, you know, I used eye drops to take care of some dry eye situation. Uh, and a week from now, that's going to show up or even probably not even the next day or two days later. Is that going to show up on any kind of panel because it goes through your, uh, what do you say, metabolized or whatever your body works it out pretty quickly. It doesn't hang around for a long time. 
I'm not familiar with the exact half-life on this. And part of the problem with tetrahydrosoline is that there isn't a whole lot of data out there on what is a toxic level and what is a fatal level because it's just so rare and novel that it doesn't happen. Before recent times, there wasn't much experience with eye drops containing tetrahydrosoline being ingested or being used maliciously. So during the FDA trials and whatnot, they're looking at putting this these drops in the eyes and what happens, but you know, you can't go do a study and feed people these eye drops, ingest these eye drops. It would be like trying to get a study passed where you're gonna go have a group of test subjects drink motor oil for a week and test their blood level. That's not what it's intended for. You just can't do that. So there's not a whole lot of information. I don't know how many, but it's been linked in some cases as a date rape drug. And there's a new new term for that. What is it? Uh, medication-assisted sexual assault or drug-assisted sexual assault, I believe it's now called. But there have been several reports of it being used that way. And generally, the way that works is that it's been found to cause the victim or whoever has in ingested it periods of amnesia. It causes stomach upset, diarrhea, loss of consciousness, depressed respirations. So the person's kind of feels crappy, goes into an unconscious state. Often they will report flashes of waking up, not enough to take any action or get out of the situation they're in, but just enough to sort of recognize things around them for a second or two, and then they're back out. It also apparently has some properties on memory where you don't really remember a whole lot about what happened the next day. So I guess disgusting, depraved animals use this uh, on women to have their way. Well, uh, but in this case, it didn't sound like, at least to this point, you haven't said there's any evidence that anybody was trying to take advantage of Lynn in that kind of way. So what's going on here? Why why are they found this in her system? Like, what's the deal? Right. And that was very odd. And something that was particularly odd about that is that what they didn't find, you know, there were all these prescription bottles around her on the table and one had fallen on the floor, but there wasn't any eye drops around her. No bottles of eye drops, no boxes, no packaging in the trash. There was no eye drops around. While there were other medications, and including some of those that she had stopped taking or should have stopped taking before, were in her system, none of those were really at fatal levels. Some were the therapeutic range and some were excessive, but none individually was at any kind of a fatal level, except for the tetrahydrosoline. And this was difficult because, again, there aren't studies and reports on this. The uh, medical examiner worked with the laboratory that does the toxicology testing to sort of gain some insight and find other individual cases where death had occurred or where uncomfortable consciousness had been reported and look at the levels and see, and they certainly believed that 160 nanograms per milliliter was a fatal dose. And so the medical examiner continues working on this, trying to find information. She was very, very thorough did not jump to conclusions, but she notified the sheriff's office, and then that's when the investigation started. And at that point, Jesse had been calling the Emmy's office frequently to find out what the cause of death was and asking about the toxicology and were they sure it was a suicide or what happened. And at this point, once the finding of the tetrahydrosoline was in place and the medical examiner is now considering homicide as a manner of death, a hold was put on communication between the medical examiner and the general public. So Jesse was told at her next phone call that if she wanted to talk about it any further, 
further, she needed to contact the sheriff's office. So the sheriff's office starts investigating. Of course, they're looking at how eye drops would get into Lynn's system. And one of the things the medical examiner concluded was that Lynn did not do this all by herself because she believed with the amount of tetrahydrosoline found in her system and all the other drugs that most importantly, she would have lacked the capacity to get up and go anywhere to dispose of all these eye drop bottles and packages and whatnot. And secondly, she would not have been able to continue with whatever she was doing with these pills that were in her body, all these medications, this pill crushed up dust. So the medical examiner felt like this had somebody else had to do this. Lynn couldn't have done it herself. Meanwhile, there were some questions about money. Imagine that. Mm, always follow the money. Right. So Jesse Krzyzewski was the they call it something different in Wisconsin, but she was in charge of Lynn's estate and promptly filed a will with the probate office or wherever they do that in that particular state. And it basically named Jesse and Anthony as the, the heirs. Uh, they don't call it, I know you say they call it something different. They don't call it a uh, power of attorney or whatever. Personal representative. That's what oh, it is. That's actually what, uh, that's the language that's, that's like a more modern trend. I'm familiar with like executor and executrix. Right. So that is, uh, you know, it's like genderized or I don't know if that's a word, but you know, you say personal representative, bam, doesn't matter. You've covered the person. You don't have to change it around. It's just personal representative. How about that? So she was the personal representative and Lynn had left everything pretty much split it between Anthony and Jesse and no surprises there. Those were the two kids, not kids anymore. They're adults at this point, but two people that she sort of looked at as her kids, nephews, godchildren nephew and niece, godchildren, whatever you want to call them. But Anthony had some issues when he learned that there was a whole lot of debt. He wasn't really expecting there to be a huge windfall from Lynn's death. Lynn had told him previously on several occasions about this safe deposit box at a bank that she had. And she had told him, you know, if anything ever happens to me, here's where the key is. I want you to go. There's money in there for you. It'll help you with college. Some years prior, she had told him there was like 10,000 in there. More recently, she had told him there was 50,000 in cash in there and wanted him to go get it. She had originally wanted to get him his own key and put him on the listing with the bank. But at that time, he was a minor and his mom didn't think that was such a good idea to have a teenager with access to that. So Lynn ended up just showing him where she kept the key and told him if anything ever happens to me uh, this is for you i want you to go get it but after lynn died there was uh, only one visit to that box and that was by jesse and her mom and then the next time the box was opened there was nothing in it except for a very small gemstone and i don't know whether that was real or fake but it was just a a loose gemstone in there there was no cash so they expecting fifty thousand dollars and there's zero dollars yeah, right. There's absolutely nothing except for this one loose gemstone. And Anthony testified that he wasn't, you know, really excited about getting money about this. He really just wanted Lynn back, but she had told him several times in several conversations that he said he really didn't want to listen to about her will and what to do over the years. These conversations happened, I guess, when he was, you know, 15, 16, 17. 
18 and on. And he had just had no interest in having those conversations or really paying attention to anything that she had to say about it because he didn't want to think about it. So the point to all that is that he was surprised when he found out that there was a whole bunch of debt that Lynn had. He couldn't really imagine how that was the case. He knew that she had bought her condo. He knew that she wasn't into credit cards and loans and all this, but Jesse as the personal representative gave him this accounting that pretty much there, there wasn't much in the way of money left and all these bills had to be paid out of her estate. He got suspicious and he asked her for receipts. So she emailed him a whole bunch of PDF file electronic receipts. The problem with those receipts is, for instance, there was one in there for uh, ServPro, a company that supposedly had done some mitigation of smoke damage or something at her condo. But when police contacted ServPro, the owner of ServPro, he said, that's not my receipt. That's not what my invoices look like. And I've never done work for this woman or at this house. Oh, snap. And as they went through every single receipt that was sent to Anthony, it was the exact same situation all the way through. Every receipt that she included was completely completely fake for all of these strange expenses. Now, at first, he didn't know any better. He thought some of it was pretty odd, but he didn't know the receipts were fraudulent. He just thought these were odd expenses for Lynn to have. One expense that, that was sort of scrutinized later is a veterinary office for euthanizing a cat because Jesse later claimed that Lynn had requested that her cats be put to sleep if she died. Wait, so the woman who wants everybody to leave money in her name to the no-kill shelters supposedly said, when I die, just kill my cats. Yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? No, this is, ain't looking good for Jesse. That bothers me on a couple of levels. Yeah, I'm surprised you said that so calmly, honestly. Yeah, and, and apparently there was one genuine receipt where she had had a cat put down, but then she forged another receipt that doesn't even have the name of the cat on it. She forged like the uh, invoice number and all this stuff, and the veterinary clinic said, uh, no, that's not a legit invoice number. The name of the pet would be here this and that, that this is a total fraud, total fake. That transaction never happened. Where did the money go? So now we're looking at money and the investigation sort of gets into full swing and they look back at all of Lynn's accounts and they want to look at Jesse's accounts too. And they found that Lynn's spending based on her bank accounts and whatnot was pretty conservative and very consistent. But when Jesse entered the picture about six months before her death, and when I say entered the picture, I mean She'd always been a part of her life, but about six months before was when she started helping Lynn out, ha-ha, and uh, doing some things for her. So it was at that point that things really took a difference in how Lynn's spending was going and how she handled her finances. Suddenly, her spending pattern started to look a lot like Jesse's. Her credit score plummeted, starting to look a lot more like Jesse's. Large checks were written to Jesse, signed by Lynn, allegedly. And on the memo line, there'd be things that just didn't correspond to any of Lynn's debts or expensive. And it doesn't even make sense that Lynn would be writing checks made out to Jesse. And then down in the memo field would write IRS payment. If she's going to write a check for the IRS, why not write it to the IRS? That was a $12,000 check, for example, made out to Jesse with IRS payment down in the memo line. 
But the thing is, Lynn didn't owe the IRS. In fact, that year she got a refund. There's no reason for her to be making an IRS payment, much less making it through Jesse. It was also a $6,000 check made out to Jesse with doctor endoscopy in the memo field. And there were, I don't know, probably a dozen or more, 20 of these checks that were in the thousands, 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, 15,000, all made out to Jesse. And most of them had weird things in the memo line. One or two might have said gift. There were also checks written to pay Jennifer Flower's rent, and Jennifer Flower, longtime friend of Lynn, is the mother of Jesse. Meanwhile, Jesse was doing a lot of spending, both in her own accounts and things were being purchased from Lynn's account that were obviously for Jesse's use. Thousands or tens of thousands in a month being spent at casinos, and those transactions, whether they were coming out of Lynn's accounts or Jesse's, those lined up with when Jesse's boyfriend acknowledged they were at the casino or cell phone records of where she was. You know, Lynn wasn't at the casino, Jesse was, and this money's being spent. Might be coming out of Jesse's account, might be coming out of Lynn's. A lot of money was moved between accounts too, from Lynn's to Jesse's and shuffled around six different ways, which is sort of odd if Lynn was just writing her checks and saying, you know, here, I want you to have this money. You would think it'd be deposit and then the expenses, but things were being shuffled around quite a bit here. Jessie was also buying extravagant gifts for her boyfriend, her boyfriend's ex-wife and his children. She was buying furnishings for the home that she shared with her boyfriend. He thought all these things were unnecessary. He didn't question too much, I guess, where the money was coming from or didn't know exactly how much she was spending was this he thinking she had like an OnlyFans account or something i mean where, where did he think all this was coming from is he just like really naive or what from what i understand he was somewhat naive but really just not getting into like they maintained separate accounts they didn't commingle money or anything she had hers and he had his and he sort of took care of the household expenses and so she would pop up with these things and i don't think he really knew whether she was charged on a credit card or maybe she had gotten some money here or there, whatever. He didn't get into her business a lot. And I think she took great care to make sure that the people that knew her were very compartmentalized. He never met Lynn, even though he was her boyfriend and they lived together. He never met Lynn. Mm, that's interesting. Now, also, uh, you mentioned that Jesse bought, I think, gifts for his ex-wife, I think you said. Yeah. And she found that pretty odd that, uh, I, mean, I find that pretty odd. That for, for Mother's Day, she received a gift card for like some spa makeover thing. And it didn't take her long to figure out that Jesse had sent it and put the kid's name on it. And that was just not usual for them, anyone in that family. They said that they always had good holidays and Christmases. They had gifts. But when Jesse was in the picture, it just went over the top. The oldest daughter went to... I believe it was Thailand and Jesse noticing that her boyfriend's ex-wife, the mother of this daughter, you know, was really missing her, offered to pay for her trip to go see her and the ex-wife declined. Wow. That's interesting. And I think I remember from reviewing uh, one of the documents or some, some parts about this case uh, that it was this ex who made a statement to investigators or at one point or, or something just along the lines that they didn't really know. Maybe she had like crazy amounts of credit card debt or what but to just kind of come back to that point about you know was he just naive you know her current boyfriend but it sounds like based on the the ex there maybe there was also some thinking that she was just sort of financially irresponsible and so she's spending a bunch of money that she doesn't really have and, and you know they didn't really like you said they didn't really know 
Uh, there wasn't a real explanation for it, but they just kind of thought, well, this is just how she is and whatever. I think she was trying to gain favor with her boyfriend's kids and with the ex. I think she also liked to show off a little bit with these gifts and whatnot, which is sort of ironic. The boyfriend's oldest daughter, when asked about Jessie, said, well, you know, she, she's annoying, but, but nice. And huh. I think they just found her overall behavior weird. And like you said, I think they didn't really think much of where the money was coming from. You know, her boyfriend believed that she had a job and she was working and maybe he thought she was using credit cards too. As it turns out though, she was not working. She would get up every day and put on her scrubs to go work in this dental office and head out the driveway. But she confided in her boyfriend's cousin, who was also living at the house, for whatever reason, she confided in him that she actually wasn't working. She didn't have a job. That was all just a show. I don't know why wow. you would do that. Did boyfriend's cousin then say like, oh, wow, where is all the money coming from? Or I guess that was just the end of it. He didn't ask. And apparently he also didn't tell his cousin that this conversation took place. Maybe he just assumed she had an OnlyFans account and left it at that. Uh, maybe. Although I've seen pictures of this chick. I don't think she was getting it from OnlyFans. Hey, there's somebody out there for everybody, Bob. I guess. I mean, there is a market for feet pics. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I think her job was being a parasite, really. So loan applications were made. One of them was online and one of them was in person at a bank. The online application makes absolutely no sense. And when that was originated, there was some shuffling again of bank accounts, like it was to be funded into bank account of Jesse's, but she forged a fake voided check that was to her account that appeared to have Lynn's name on it as well, but Lynn was actually not someone on that account. The one in-person loan that was applied for, and they couldn't quite figure out if this loan was ever went through or not, but the record of that looks like a very bad computer printout, which is really hard to read and decipher, but it does appear that the box, you know, face-to-face -face or in-person was checked. Now, the people at the bank going back, they can't remember who was there. Was it really Lynn or was it someone pretending to be Lynn? They don't know. And of course, looking at it a year or two, three years later, they don't have video camera footage of things that weren't an issue at the time. Yeah, that makes sense. And just listening to the story, my gosh, I don't know this for sure, but based on what you said, it sounds like uh, Jesse's probably committed any number of uh, fraud crimes. And then when you go forging things or even just making false statements uh, on any kind of bank documents or um, those sorts of things, I mean, those are, there's serious penalties associated with, I mean, criminal penalties associated with that. So, I, I mean, I'm curious, you know, what's going to happen here? Are, are they going to take her down for all this fraudulent uh, activity related to, to Lynn or what's going to happen to old Jesse? You just stand by. There's more to this story. So there were several large credit card accounts that were opened and used heavily. Again, this was not a pattern of life, as the investigators put it, that was associated with Lynn. It looked a lot more like the way Jesse operated things. And most of these were opened and managed online. Again, not the way Lynn did things. Not off her flip phone, right? Right. Yeah, that wasn't happening. Jesse owned a P.O. box. She went and set up a P.O. box, and that P.O. box was the address associated with many of Lynn's new accounts. Also a uh, burner phone number, not an actual phone, but one of those apps you download. 
And they were able to very easily see that Jesse was the one that was using these apps and had acquired this phone number. That was the phone number used on a lot of Lens, these new accounts of Lens and some of the accounts that Jesse was sort of taking over. There was even a recording from when Jesse had called Citibank about one of Lynn's credit accounts, credit card accounts, but she pretended to be Lynn in that phone call. She had said that any financial transaction that she was involved in, Lynn was right beside her and knew everything about it. But why then, if they're together, does Jesse need to pretend to be Lynn? There's not been any evidence anywhere, any suggestion that one, Lynn couldn't handle her own business. So why would Jesse need to call in the first place? But even if she wanted Jesse to do some talking or figure it out, why couldn't she call? But it was clearly Jesse in the recording, not Lynn. Now, the day Lynn died, there's some interesting really disgusting things that happened that day too. Jesse changed her story a few times about what happened the day Lynn died. She initially said that she had gone over to see Lynn for about an hour in the morning. They watched a little bit of TV and just sort of hung out, nothing really special or heavy. And then Jesse left to go run some errands and she came back and found Lynn dead. She later would say that she spent hours there, several hours, and there was an argument before she left to go run errands and Lynn was alive and well. Uh, when she came back, she was dead. But there were some purchases made on Lynn's accounts, like literally while she was dying that morning, like a $2,000 TV and an Apple Watch that were purchased with Lynn's credit to be delivered to Jennifer Flowers' residence. Again, that's Jesse's mom. $1,300 spent at Kohl's. A JCPenney credit card account opened online and used. These are all happening at 9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning in the hours where Lynn was dying. There's a whole lot more to this story, and we'll get into it in the next episode. Come on back. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. <laughs>